0: are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Amen. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, we worship your Son, Jesus Christ, because He is worthy. And we come by your Spirit. We join the chorus that's being sung by all of creation. A chorus that's being um, shouted right, right now, Lord, in the courts of heaven before your glorious throne, that you are holy and that you are worthy. And so, God, I pray right now for every person in this room, every soul, every heart, Lord, I pray, God, that we would have a sense of your presence, your glory, your holiness, your goodness, your kindness, your mercy and your love, God. Lord, every person in this room has a story. Lord, every person in this room is carrying their own hurts, their own worries, their own anxieties, their own fears. Lord, I pray that your presence, God, would overwhelm each and every one of us and that we would worship you with hearts that truly love you. God, we pray right now that as we open your word, God, that you would please speak to us, Lord, that you would speak clearly, Lord. No one needs to hear my voice, Lord. We need to hear a word from you. And so we ask that you would do that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. Open up your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers will help you out with that in just a minute. They're going to come up and down the aisle with Bibles to pass out to people who don't have one. So just, I'll raise your hand. You know, sometimes I'm... I find myself in the middle of some sort of activity, and then I almost have like this out-of-body experience where I'm, I'm just taking a step outside of what I'm doing and actually thinking about what's going on. You know, in the last couple of weeks, I rediscovered that I had a lawn. Uh, for, for all of the winter months, you know, it's been covered in, in snow and then all of a sudden this uh, green grass or brown grass has emerged. And I started thinking about lawn care and I started thinking about all the things I'm going to have to do to maintain my lawn. I, I want it to grow and so I you know, I, I, I put uh, fertilizer on it and soil and then I, have, I, I, I see that I, I want it to grow so badly but not too much. Not too much. I don't want it to grow too much. I, need to, I got this machine that I need to maintain and look after. And, and then the machine cuts the stuff that I want to grow. And, and then and, but we all have these fields in our homes, around our homes, of fields. And the crop, it's really something useless. I mean, all we do is we want it to grow so badly, then we cut it down and we put it in very large brown paper bags out on the street. And sometimes I, I think about lawn care and how I can become so obsessed with it and then really realizing, well, why am I, why am I doing that? You know, I, 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 my kids just started playing a hockey and, and, and I had a similar experience where I sort of stepped outside of it for a minute and I'm, I'm putting all of this armor on my children and I'm giving them a, a stick and boots with blades on the bottom and then I'm sending them to this place this sort of oval with lines on it that has a thin layer of ice, and then I'm cheering for them when they do certain things, and then I'm, I'm, I'm upset when they do other things, and I wonder, what, what am I, why am I cheering? Why am I upset? Why does any of this matter? Do you ever have moments like that where you're just thinking, why am I doing what I'm doing? Do you ever have moments like that about church? What... What are we doing here? Why are we singing these songs? Why are we opening up this document that's thousands of years old and trying to apply it into our lives? What is the point? Now listen, I I can't really give you an explanation for why lawn care matters or even why hockey matters, even here in Canada. But I can tell you clearly that there is a reason why we worship. When it comes to worship, what we do is determined by who he is. That, that is why we do what we do. The only reason why we do what we do is only because of who he is. And today in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to see two worship events in the life of David and really in the life of the people of Israel. Two worship events. And we're going to see that as they are worshiping, they are growing in their understanding of who God is. And so what we're going to see today, we're going to see three signs that our worship, that what we do in worship is flowing out of a knowledge of who God is. Here's the first one, if you're taking notes today, jot this down. The first sign that we're worshiping because of who he is, is a reverent caution. If our worship is not just rooted on what we want to do, but if it's rooted in the rock solid reality of who God is, then our worship must be characterized by reverent caution. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 1. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with, the, with all the people who were with him from, from Baal Judah to bring up the ark of God. And so. They go to this place called Baal Judah. It's also known as Kiriath Agiram. And the, the last place, or the last time this place was mentioned, was in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4 through uh, chapter 7. That the people of Israel really foolishly brought the Ark of the Covenant with them, sort of as a good luck charm, to go into battle against the Philistines. They ended up losing the battle, and the Philistines took control of the Ark of the Covenant. And then they brought it to one of their cities. They put it in a a temple of one of their gods named Dagon. They got up the next morning. Dagon was decapitated. He was fell face over. He had his head and arms chopped off. And they thought, this isn't working. And then mice started infesting all of their lands. And they started to grow these tumors, these boils, these sores. And they took it from place to place, city to city, all around Philistia. And eventually they said, you know what? Forget it. We're sending this thing back to the people of Israel. And the resting place... For the ark was Kiriath-Jerim. And it stayed there for multiple decades. But now that David has established himself as king. He wants to prioritize worship among the people of God. And and he's established Jerusalem as the new uh, capital city. And so he's going to move the ark of the covenant from Kiriath-Jerim or Baal-Judah to the city of Jerusalem. In the middle of verse 2 there it says he calls it the ark of God. Which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned above the cherubim well what, what, what does that mean? Well, let me show you a diagram just of, of what the Ark of the Covenant uh, looked like, and so it was it 's a box, it was a four by two by two box, and on the lid of the box there were two Angel creature statues called cherubim. And they were pointing with their wings towards the center. And notice how it says, the Lord is enthroned above the cherubim. There in verse 2. And so the idea was that this ark, it was like the throne of God. It was the symbolic presence of God. Not in the box, because you can't put God in a box. But that he was present over the box, enthroned upon the cherubim. And so this ark, this box was very, very important for worship because it was a sign of the presence of God. Within the box there were three items. The stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments uh, written on them that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. There was a walking staff that used to belong to Moses' brother Aaron that miraculously budded. And, and, and started to produce uh, leaves and fruit as, as a, a sign of vindicating his uh, leadership. And then a jar filled with manna that God miraculously provided for the people while they were wandering in the wilderness. And so this ark was a very, very important part of their history. Uh, by this point, it's already four centuries old. And it had been protected and preserved. And now, in, in, in an act of worship, David wanted to uh, bring it to the city of Uh, Jerusalem. Verse 3 says And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab which was on the hill and Uzzah and Ahio the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. Now look at verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And so there was this There was this musical celebration. They were singing songs. The worship band was there with all of their uh, instruments. Now in the New Testament we're told that our whole life is supposed to be an act of worship. And, And we're supposed to live lifestyles of worship. We're supposed to offer our bodies on the altar of praise to God. And some people like to say, you know what, worship is more than music. And I'll accept that, but we need to be very clear. Worship is definitely more than music, but it's not less than music. And if you're here today and you're thinking that, you know, you're, you're doing this lifestyle of worship thing and you're not really into singing and maybe you even time your arrival to church to sort of skip the singing to get to the sermon, I want to warn you that you're engaged in something that is inherently unbiblical. In the Psalms and beyond, even in the New Testament, we are commanded... To sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Christians sing. The truths of this book, the reality of who God is, because what we do is determined by who he is, is too great, it's too awesome simply just to talk about or to read about. They're so powerful, they're so profound, they're so beautiful. The way to truly express them is to Sing. And so, loved ones, we need to grow as singers. If you're not into singing, you need to get into singing. Spoiler alert, in heaven, there's a ton of singing. And so if you're not into it now, that's going to be, you might not enjoy heaven. And we want you to have a great time there. So, get into uh, singing. So the celebration is going on. And in verse 6 it says, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God. And took hold of it for the oxen stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. You can imagine this you know, 30,000 people involved in the celebration and all of the musical instruments. You can imagine how there's this great celebration going on. And then, and then people start to recognize, well, something's not right down there by the by the ox cart. There's, there's, someone, there's someone lying down on the ground and there's a group of, of people uh, crowding around them. And eventually the, the musicians stop playing. And then that last person bashing on the cymbal when they realize everyone else has stopped and the cymbal reverberates into the the air and the celebration transitions into a stunned silence because someone's dead and God had struck them down. It says says in in verse 7, it was the anger of the Lord. And then look at verse 8, it says, and David was angry because the Lord had that... David was was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And they named that place Perez Uzzah, the place where God broke out against Uzzah. This was such an impactful moment for the people of Israel that they actually set this place apart. They renamed it as a place of remembrance. That this was the place where God struck down Uzzah. But David's initial reaction in that moment was anger so God's angry and David's angry at God for being angry and I don't know about you but I'm actually thankful that it records that about David because I remember the first time that I read this passage and if I'm truly honest it's not just the first time it's every time I read this passage something doesn't sit right with me and maybe David was thinking like somehow I'm thinking. You know, the, God, this seems like a bit of an overreaction. I mean, to strike someone down on what seems obviously must have been some sort of mistake or misunderstanding or technicality. God, what are you, what are you doing here? And we need to be very careful when we read the Bible. And we need to be very careful about these, about these thoughts because we need to be careful that we're not putting ourselves over God judging his actions. Because he's the one who's over us judging our actions. And so we need to have a better understanding of what is actually going on here. And I I included in your notes, to really help you get a grasp of this, a a quotation from R.C. Sproul, who recently went to be with the Lord. R.C. Sproul was a wonderful gift to the church. A great pastor and scholar and leader. And he wrote an incredible book, a book that I read in university, that transformed my life, called The Holiness of God. And this is what he has to say about this incident. He says, Uzzah assumed assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth. But it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark, it was the touch of man. The earth is an obedient creature. It does what God tells it to do. It brings forth its yield in season. It obeys the laws of nature that God has established. When the temperature falls to a certain point, the ground freezes. When the water is added to the dust, it becomes mud. Just as God designed it. The ground doesn't commit cosmic treason. There's nothing polluted about the ground. God did not want his holy throne Touched by that which was contaminated by evil, that was in rebellion to him, that which by its ungodly revolt has brought the whole creation to ruin and caused the ground and the sky and the waters of the sea to groan together in travail, waiting the day of redemption. Man, it is man's touch that was forbidden. God didn't have a problem with the ground. God doesn't have a problem with all of his creation the stars that are burning at the farthest edge of the furthest galaxy they are bringing glory to god they're fulfilling the purpose for which they were created the little ant that's crawling around uh, the ground that's digging little tunnels in the ground is doing exactly fulfilling the purpose for which it was created birds when they fly from tree to tree and build nests and lay eggs and sing songs the bird is fulfilling the purpose for which it was created every other creature gets it but us We are the ones who were created in the image of God. Who were supposed to live in humble submission and obedience to God. Who were supposed to live in relationship with Him. And we are the ones who are polluted. We are the ones who have rebelled against God. And so loved ones, we need to worship with reverent caution. Because we are sinners and God is holy. The next verse, verse 9 says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? That's the most important question of this passage. That's really the most important question of our lives. Because remember what the ark means. The ark is the symbol of God's presence. So when David says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? What he's saying is, how can God's presence come to me? How can I, a sinful human being, stand in the presence of God? David knew in that moment that he was no different from Uzzah. David knew that when sinful human beings come in contact with the holiness of God, the result is death. And so loved ones, we need to understand what sin is. If we're going to worship, we need to understand what's wrong with us. There's there's three words in the Old Testament that are used to describe sin. The first one is sin. And sin is an archery term. It means missing the target. So picture a target, and that's God's perfect law. And we aim, we try our best to get it in the bullseye, but we miss. We miss the target. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We couldn't get it into the bullseye. That's only one part of sin, though. Another another word for sin is the word transgression. Transgression. You see, it's not always that we're trying to be good and we fail. Sometimes we just want to be bad. And that's what transgression means. That means I'm not shooting at that target. I'm going to shoot over here. I'm going to shoot shoot you. It's, it's, It's saying, no, I'm going to take what God has given me and I'm going to make the rules. If he draws a line and says don't cross that line, I'm going to step over it just because I want to. And that is inside of all of us. And then the third one is the word iniquity, and that refers to perversion or distortion. That means that we see the target, and we, and we see the bow and arrow, and we say, I'm not going to use this. So we, we break the rope, the string off the, off the bow, and we break the arrow over our knee and say, forget this. And that's when we take something good that God has given us, and our sinfulness distorts it, and perverts it into something, something that was intended to be good is then used for something evil. Loved ones, if we're going to worship God, we need to know who he is. And we need to know who we are in relationship to him. Because what we do is determined by who he is. Verse 10 says, David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. A Gittite is—that's someone who is from the city of Gath. And Gath—that's the city where Goliath is from. That's a city in Philistia. And uh, text isn't clear here if this person actually was a Philistine or maybe they lived in Gath for some sort of reason. But isn't it interesting? Here's the ark coming back, just at least being associated. With the Philistines again. And so three months go by. And, and what happened during those three months? Well, we're going to find out. I'm going to show you what I think David was, was doing in that moment. I think he was reading his Bible. And I, because in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that every king of, of Israel was supposed to write out, copy out their own copy of the law of God. And they were responsible in conjunction with the priests of making sure that the people were following the law of God. And so David, I think, for those three months is combing through the Bible to try to figure out what went wrong. You see, ultimately, David was the one who was responsible for what happened to Uzzah because he was the leader. But verse 12 ends by saying, The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him. Because of the ark of God. David was reminded that the purpose of God's presence is not to destroy human beings, but to bless them. That's God's design. That's God's intention. That's what was happening with Obed-Edom. And so it goes on in verse 13. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with Rejoicing with rejoicing. So, jot this down secondly. We must have reverent caution, but our worship also must be characterized by joyful celebration. When David went back to get the ark to bring it a second time, he went with rejoicing. Now, look at verse 13. It says, When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Do you notice how the mode of transportation for the Ark of the Covenant has changed? It was on an ox cart before. That's why it all went wrong. The oxen stumbled and Uzzah reached out his hand. But now here in verse 13 it says those that bore the Ark. So what was happening here? Well, in order to understand what's happening here, we need to sort of understand how the Bible fits together. We've been tracing the story of Samuel and then Saul and then David through the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And as the books go on, we're going to learn about Solomon and then all of the other kings from in 1 and 2 Kings. But a few books later, in the book of 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, it doesn't keep telling the story that way. It actually retells The story of David and Solomon. And so what I want you to do right now is turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 15. So 1 Chronicles chapter 15. It appears later in your Bible, but it actually retells the stories of uh, David. And so in the same way that you can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament to get a different angle, a different perspective on the same event, we can read First and 2 Samuel together with 1 and 2 Chronicles and 1 uh, and Second uh, Kings as well to get a, a, a different angle, a different perspective. Here's the added detail that we're given in 1 Chronicles chapter 15. Look at verse 2. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him Forever. Uzzah was not a Levite. And now, David, who had been reading his Bible, he's now saying, Okay, only Levites now can carry the ark. Now look down at verse 13. He says, speaking to the Levites, he says, Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us. Because we did not seek him according to the rule." David was now familiar with the commands of God. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles. As Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So David had done his research. And this is what he had found. Numbers chapter 4 verses 4 to 6. It says, when the camp is to set out. Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. That's important. Ozan never should have come in contact with the ark because it should have been covered. He goes on to say, Then, it shall put, then they shall put on it a covering of goatskin skin and, and spread on top of that a cloth of blue. Three layers should have been covering uh, the ark. And shall put in its poles. The sons of Koash shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. You see, Uzzah broke an explicitly stated command in the word of God. With a clear warning. If you touch the ark, you will die. God loves us. And he has given us his word to teach us and to instruct us and to even warn us about the consequences. David, as the leader, had ignored that and the consequences were very dire. So let's go back and look at this this picture of the Ark of the Covenant again. Did you notice how in the bottom there are these rings? In the construction of the Ark of the Covenant, built in, there was to be these four rings And the purpose for these rings on the four corners was so that poles could slide through. So that the ark could be moved with the ark never being touched. That was the plan. That was the idea to use these poles. And then it was supposed to be covered with three different layers. You see, when we read the Bible more closely, when we we fit it together, how 1, 1 and 2 Samuel fit together with 1 Chronicles and how that's related to Numbers chapter 4. You see, when we familiarize ourselves with the word of God, Uzzah's death doesn't become as shocking. Because we understand the context, because we understand the blatant disobedience to the word of God that was taking place. It's not that it's, not, it's, not that it's, it's no longer serious. It, it's not that it would no longer trouble us. But we have a better understanding of what was happening in that moment. So then David, now with reverent caution, but also with joyful celebration. In verse 14 it says, David danced before the Lord with all his might. And wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of uh, the horn. Why was David dancing uh, before the Lord? It's because they were now following God's word properly. They now knew that they were worshipping according to the rule. But look back at verse 13 for a minute. It says, When they had gone six steps carrying the ark on these poles, it says that he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. That sacrifice is very important. That sacrifice did two things. One, it pointed back to the death of Uzzah. Because they, they called that place Perez Uzzah, the place where he died. And now as they're leaving Obed-Edom's house, they, they, they make a sacrifice looking back, remembering the fact that someone entered the symbolic presence of God. Someone touched the ark and they died. And now we with joy now are celebrating that we're moving the ark of God into the presence of in the city of Jerusalem. But we are remembering that someone died and we are remembering that all of us apart from the grace of God and the mercy of God would end up like Azza. So the sacrifice, the, the dead animal, the blood, the death in that moment was a reminder of Azza. It pointed backwards, but loved ones, it also pointed forwards. It pointed forward to the cross of Jesus Christ, where he would give a sacrifice of his own life once and for all, where his death, where his blood, would remind us the seriousness of our sin. And not only remind us and teach us of the seriousness of our, of our sin, but would remove our sin and its consequences. That he died the death that we deserve. He was punished instead of us. You see, no one can come into the presence of God or they'll die. But Christ came from the presence of God and died. And so his death is like a bridge. Those of us who can't enter the presence, he came from the presence so that through his death and faith in him, we then can enter into the presence of God. That is why, because of the sacrifice, that is why David is rejoicing. And that is why we rejoice, loved ones. Now, some of you might be might be thinking, you know, that's fine for the people who sort of, you know, like to like to celebrate a little more visually, a little more audibly in their worship. But you know what, that's just, that's just not, my, that's not my personality. That's not my cultural upbringing. That's just, not, that's just not who I am. Well, I was reading a book by J.D. Greer uh, this week on 2 on, uh, Samuel, and he just, he just gave this simple illustration. He said, what if someone gave you an envelope? Let's say in that envelope was in cash money enough money to either pay your rent or pay your mortgage for the next 30 years. So let's, let's just picture that someone hands that envelope and says, I want you to have this, no strings attached, this is a pure gift to you, I hope you enjoy it. Now would you open the envelope, and then with your hands at your side and your so- shoulders sort of slumped over and say, that's really generous. Thank you, thank you very much. I doubt, I doubt, regardless of your personality, I doubt anyone would respond in that way. It would probably be more something like this. Loved ones, what does God put in our envelope? Something more valuable than money, something that'll last longer than 30 years. The gift of His Son, the gift of eternal life. It's a joyful celebration, it's necessary out of gratitude for all that God is because what we do is determined by who he is and and what he's done for us. Joyful celebration is the appropriate response. That's why at Harvest, man, we encourage you, just get your groove on a little bit. We're not not asking the people to start running up and down the aisles or anything like that, but just celebrate. Enjoy the Lord. Savor in his goodness as you worship with joyful celebration. And it's, it's quite surprising that the two things that you've written down on your, on your sermon handout so far can actually coexist. How can we have reverent caution and joyful celebration at the same time? You know, how can these two things put, put together? Well, the, the Psalms have no problem with that. Look at Psalm 2, verse 11. It says, serve the Lord with fear. And look at this. Rejoice with trembling. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Dale Ralph Davis, the great Old Testament scholar, says 2 Samuel 6 teaches you that a fearful sense of God's holiness does not suppress joy, but stimulates it. Your attempts at celebration will always remain shallow unless you actually embrace reverent caution. You won't truly delight in in who God is until you understand the seriousness of your own sin. So those two things go together beautifully. So we have reverent caution, we have joyful celebration, and then lastly we have undivided devotion. Undivided devotion. I said that there were two worship experiences in this passage, and and both worship experiences sort of come to a grinding halt. And so the first one, Uzzah's death, uh, put an end to that celebration. And then the second celebration when the ark actually reaches uh, Jerusalem. It's David's interaction with his wife uh, Michal that, um, that puts a damper on uh, the festivities. Verse 16 says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord as uh, she despised him. In her heart. Then look down at verse 20. It says. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal the daughter of Saul. Came out to meet David and said. How the king of Israel has honored himself today. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants. Female servants as one of the vulgar fellows. Who shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michal. It was before the Lord. You see, David had an undivided devotion. He only cared about doing things before the Lord. He wasn't concerned about these other people and what they thought about him. But Michal, notice how it mentions twice, that she was the daughter of Saul. And just like her father, she had a lot of concern about what other people thought about her. And what other people thought about her husband. She car- sarcastically says that David has o- had honored himself. Where she's saying, no, you did not act honorably. She says, the, you, you were uncovering yourself today before the eyes of his servants and his female servants. So she's, saying, she's talking about sort of the lowest of the low in social status. The servants of your servants were seeing you do this. Now she uses that phrase uncovering. Now some people sort of wrongly misunderstand this. Like David was dancing around in his tidy whities That's not what was happening. It says he was wearing a linen ephod. Which was just a normal, simple, like apron-type garment that, that, that priests and Levites wore all the time. The uncovering issue for Michal was that he wasn't wearing his royal robes. He wasn't dressed like a king. She looked at the way that he was behaving and he was blending in with the rest of the crowd. And David said, it was before the Lord. And he's like, that's exactly what I wanted to do. You see, because when worship is before the Lord, we're all on the same level. David might have been in a higher position politically, but spiritually he was one of the people You see, we're all one. We're all equal. Before the Lord, it doesn't matter how much money you make or how attractive you are, how successful you are. It doesn't matter. Before the Lord, we are all equal. And David got that. And so, of course, he blended in with the rest of the community in that moment. Listen, worship fails when it becomes about exalting the person preaching or the person playing or whatever it is. No, we are all one. The only reason I'm up on a platform right now is so I can see you and you can see me. But when we're worshiping together, I'm down. I, I, we're, we're all one, aren't we? This is, this is what true worship is about an undivided devotion. It's all before the Lord. He goes on in verse 21. He says, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the shepherd. I wasn't looking to be king. I, I, I remember where I came from. God appointed me. He says, I will celebrate before the Lord. Then verse 22, I'll make myself more contemptible than this. He says, you ain't seen nothing, sister. He says, and I will be abased in your eyes. Or There's a footnote in my ESV that says, in, in my own eyes. David says, listen, you can judge me all you want. I don't care if you're going to judge me. I don't even judge myself. I'll be more abased in my eyes. My concern is not what people think about me. My concern is expressing what I think about God. That's what worship is all about, an undivided devotion. And then he says, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you've spoken, oh by the way, the sort of lowest of the low that you think don't matter. He says, I shall be held in honor. Because Not because I'm trying to seek honor for myself, but I will be honored because I'm seeking the honor that belongs only to God. Verse 23, and Michal, the daughter of Saul, there it is again, had no child uh, to the day of her Death. Maybe this is a sort of a fulfillment of the prophecies, the judgments that were made on Saul earlier. Maybe uh, this was some sort of curse that God put uh, on her or a sign of the breakdown in their relationship from that point on. The narrator doesn't really uh, describe it. But David here in his undivided devotion is just a great example of self-forgetful humility. David wasn't concerned about what other people Thought about him. One one of the things we say around harvest is take God very seriously, but don't take yourself so seriously. Care about what people think about God, don't care about what people think about you. David's ultimately saying what we need to say I don't care what you think about me. All I care about is what I think about the Lord, and that's what worship is about. Worship is us expressing. Our gratitude, our thankfulness, our awe, our wonder at who God is. What we do is determined by who he is. And so as we continue in worship now, we're going to remember that ultimate sacrifice that was made for us. We're going to remember Jesus Christ who because we can't enter into the presence of God lest we die, he came from the presence of God and died in our place. And so let's pray together as we prepare to uh, receive these symbols. Our Heavenly Father, God, we love you. And we want to worship you. And we want to uh, worship you not out of ignorance, but out of a knowledge that flows from a relationship with you. And so God, help us in this moment, Lord, to to have a a sense of reverent caution, but also a joyful celebration and a a devotion to you that's that's undivided, Lord. Help us to get our eyes fixed on you. And I pray that as we celebrate communion, that, that that very word evokes the idea of you communing with us, being present with us. I pray, God, that your presence would be sensed among us. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.